Would you take a minute and say thank you to not only Anita and all the other people that are running sound and all these things, the worship band, Frank, everybody. There's so many people that go into every single Sunday morning. It's easy to take it for granted sometimes, but um, there's, there's a lot of people that serve constantly, and um, it's, it's, I'm grateful. So give her some grace. We'll see what happens. I'm sure it's not her fault, but whenever the graphics show up, they show up. We're going to keep on going. Thank you, Anita. Appreciate that. Um, this morning, we start a new journey together. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks exploring wise choices and what the Bible says about that. We're going to look at some specific ones that I really believe God has put on, on my heart and, and um, that I believe He wants for our church. I, I'm going to uh, explain to you, remind you more than likely. I think most of you know most of these things somewhere in your head, in your heart. Many of you live them out as much or more than I do already, but it's important to go back through these things and to make sure that we're all making these kind of choices. So I'm going to tell you how to make wise choices from a biblical perspective. Uh, a why, when we use the word wise, a lot of times we mean different things. Have, have, has this ever happened to you? You're having a conversation with somebody, you're using the same words, the same phrases, and about halfway through the conversation, you realize you're actually talking about two different things. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or, or, or just the way you define things. For example, a good restaurant. For me, a good restaurant is Taco Bell. And that's, that's honestly, like, that's like probably my favorite one. But if, if, you, if you guys say, hey, guys, we're going to a good restaurant, and I take you to Taco Bell, a few of you are going to be pretty disappointed and shocked and like, what in the world? This is not a good restaurant because you define it differently. So when we're talking about wise choices, we could be talking about a bunch of different things. We could be talking about, is it legal? Is it correct? Is it morally right by this standard or that standard or that standard? When we're talking about it in this context for the next several weeks, what we're going to be trying to talk about is a biblical perspective of wisdom. And that takes all of that into account. It takes, obviously, facts, what's true, what's morally right or wrong. It takes all that into account. But then there's more. There's two other things that biblical wisdom adds. One is an element of strategy. If you read through especially the books of the Old Testament that we call the wisdom books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and a few passages of the other books, when we look at those, there's, it's so much more than just this is right, this is wrong. It's saying this is how to get here. This is how to make this happen. This produces this. This produces this. Hanging around with these kind of people will take you down this road. Hanging around with these kind of people will take you down this road. It's very much a strategic element. And the other thing is the presence of God himself and the ability that we have for him to actually lead us. But at the core, at the core, here's what it is. Biblically speaking, wisdom means doing the smartest, most strategic thing possible. I'd like you to say that out loud. We do have the graphics back. There it is. And if you're reading along and following on on this, you don't have to, but I know some people like to do that. The first word and most of these words, I hope all of them are in purple, the ones you'd write down. So it's in this case wisdom. Let's say this together though. Biblical wisdom is doing the smartest, most strategic thing possible. And it takes all of those things into account. How many have seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? 
You see, okay, almost everybody. In case you haven't, it's been around for about 80 years now, so spoiler alert, but I don't feel that too, that badly, okay? Um, at the, at this, most of this story is a journey that four friends take trying to, in this strange land called Oz, and they're trying to get to the wizard who they believe is going to be able to help them. And when they finally get there, after all this stuff happens, they finally get there, they get their final audience with Oz, their little dog goes and starts tugging on this curtain in the corner of the room. How many, how many know where this is going? And as, as Toto starts pulling this, this curtain, it, this guy is revealed. And they realize that the big glowing face of Oz, the big booming voice of Oz, is really just this kind of like con man guy with a projector and a microphone and stuff like that. And so he starts yelling, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And they're so disappointed he ends up kind of helping him. Um, it's it's kind of a long story. It's a fantasy story. But here's my point. And I'm just going to be very, very just transparent and real with you at this. It, this isn't a varnished way to say this. I'm just going to be really just, this is it. Okay? This is my belief. I think that most of the reason that most people don't experience intimacy with God is because they're afraid that this is what they're going to find. If they give God enough of a chance to speak to them, if they ask him, would you please speak to me through your word, through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines, through everything else, I, I want you to guide me. I want you to show me, God, what is the most strategic, best possible choice in my life. They're not going to hear anything. And that fear is what keeps us from trying at all. We're afraid that maybe God is kind of some sort of a cosmic Easter bunny or Santa Claus. There's another spoiler alert. Hopefully that doesn't ruin anything for anybody in this room this morning. But what we're worried about is what if it's not there? But if you were here several weeks ago, I know for sure you know this because we walked through it so many times. But even if you're not, here's what you need to know. In God's plan all the way through the whole Bible, here's what his plan was, was to give us a chance to meet him, to know him. It was always on his terms. And in the Old Testament, the image of the tabernacle was so clear. We have to have our sins atoned. We have to be cleansed. That has to be on his, on his terms. As we approach God, we experience fellowship with each other and we experience him on one level. We can pray, we can talk to him, but then there's this other layer of intimacy with God where he actually speaks into our daily choices. And, and that was represented by, there was a curtain there in the tabernacle. And when Jesus died, that curtain, by then it was the temple it was a permanent dwelling, but it's the same format. When Jesus died, the Bible tells us that that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. God himself ripped that. And that was a literal and metaphorical invitation from God saying, come behind the curtain. Not pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Come. Come on in. See what the view looks like from here. Come on in here with me and look at things from my perspective. And that is available to you. And if you are afraid this morning, if the reason that you've never tried to truly experience God or to invite him into your daily choices is because you're afraid maybe, maybe you're going to find a scumbag on the other side of the curtain. I, I am inviting you on God's behalf. Go behind the curtain. That is available to you. If you approach him his way, you will eventually. That is available to you.
So we're going to keep on going, uh, but this is all kind of swirling around. This becomes where wise choices can actually happen in a biblical context. It's strategy, it's, it's right and wrong, it's all of that, but it's also the, the ability, at least, for God himself to speak into our lives. So what does it look like to live behind the curtain? What would it look like if we all lived and we were all completely transformed, if we saw things the way God sees them? What would it look like if we were set free to do his will and all the stuff that keeps us mired down, all the stuff that keeps us trapped, all the stuff that keeps us afraid, all the stuff that keeps us feeling weak? What if we were able to let that go? We believe so much that he set us free that we actually experience the freedom. What would that look like? Well, it starts with Jesus' battle plan in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus started with a little passage called the Beatitudes. So our framework for the next several weeks, it, it may not seem like this is about wisdom, but it really truly is. Because wisdom ultimately is looking at life from God's perspective. Ultimately, the best possible, most strategic, most godly thing to do, the, it's only going to make sense from God's own perspective. And Jesus gives us a window into that through the Beatitudes. And it starts with this verse. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But first, let's talk about Jesus' perspective for a moment. Jesus had a holy perspective. His views were pure and untainted by anything else besides God's perfect and eternal perspective. Holy means set apart, different. It's not the same as everything else. Jesus saw everything from behind the curtain from day one. He had always seen it that way. He saw from God's perspective. And he spoke from that perspective even when it made no sense to anyone else. His, this is why he shocked people. This is why he offended people. This is why especially the rich and the powerful were really freaked out by Jesus most of the time. Because he didn't look at life the way they looked at it. He didn't value the same things they valued. He didn't assume that this person is more important than this person on the same criteria that they used. He didn't assume that this is a wise choice and this is a foolish choice based on the same criteria that they were using. And they didn't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with that. None of us. That's why Paul says we need to have our minds transformed so that we can know God's will. But this invitation was to everyone, even the rich and the powerful. In Matthew 19, there's a story of a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. We're not told how rich he was. We're not told why he was rich, how he got rich. We're not sure um, what he was the ruler of, how much authority he had. Here's what all we need to know is what the Bible tells us. This guy knew what it's like to have authority, to have power, to have an identity where people go, you better do what that guy says. And he had enough money that he knew what it was like to find identity in that. To say that I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've got money. I'm a, I'm a guy with money. He found his identity in this. And as he came to Jesus, he also revealed something else that was actually truly great about him. He actually really cared what God's moral values were. He had at least got that far. He, he tried his best to do the stuff on the to-do list and to avoid the stuff on the to-don't list, if you will. And he did his very, very best. And he tried. But he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I, I want to know, how can I be sure that I'm going to have eternal life? How can I be sure that I've got this? How can I be sure that I'm actually as cool as all the other people around me think I am? 
How do I, how do I know that God thinks that? And Jesus kind of starts where he is, and he says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't covet. And the guy goes, no, no, I, I do that. I actually do all of that. Now Jesus cuts deep. And this is where it starts applying to us, whether you are someone who is super rich or super poor or anywhere in between. This is where it starts cutting. Because here's what he does. He cuts at the guy's very identity. He cuts at who the guy saw himself, how the man saw himself. He said, okay, there's one thing you lack. You need to sell all your stuff. You need to give all that to the poor. And then come and follow me. And Matthew tells us that the man walked away sadly because he had lots of possessions. But it wasn't just because he had so many possessions. It's because that's where he found his identity. And when it came down to... What would I do on the other side of the curtain? How would, I, how would I live if I didn't have money whenever I need money? How would I live if I don't have authority and people will do what I say because I'm the guy they have to obey? How would I? I don't know how to do that. I don't even want to know how to do that. I don't want to go behind the curtain. And so he didn't. Similar story, rich guy. We're told that Matthew himself... Um, was called by Jesus in the same way. Matthew was rich. He was a tax collector. He had uh, a lot of authority, backed up by the Roman government. In fact, he had a whole nother layer that was messed up in his situation because if he was going to quit being a tax collector, he would be hated by everyone else. There wouldn't just be like he didn't have that authority anymore. He would have people wanting revenge. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there was, there was a whole nother layer to this. But he gave him the same call. Give it all up. Come and follow me. And Matthew, thank God, stood up, left it all behind, and followed Jesus. That's why we can read the book of Matthew today. That's why, that's why we know. Because he went behind the curtain and he saw what was on the other side. And Jesus said, you know, sometimes it's hard for people who have authority, power of any kind, People who have a lot of stuff, a lot of riches, they find their identity in that. It's almost impossible. In fact, Jesus said it is impossible on a human level for those people to come to God. That's weird. That's shocking. That's confusing. That's offensive even to many of us because that's not how our culture works either. And yet this is what Jesus said. Jesus starts out his biggest message ever, Matthew 5, 3. Read it with me, if you will. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke's version of this, he just leaves out in spirit and just says poor. And that's not really an accident either. Jesus said this same message several different times. This was part of what he went, said everywhere he went. This was like Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. That was one day where he went and said pretty much all of that stuff on one mountain in one day. But this was Jesus' core teaching he said all the time. And throughout not only Jesus' teaching, but throughout the whole scripture, it's really hard to separate the concept of the poor and the humble. The concepts of those who are, live in poverty and those who live understanding their need for God. They're separate, but they're, they're usually tied together. And I believe probably some of the times when Jesus spoke this, just like how Luke wrote it down, he just said, blessed are the poor. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes when he spoke it, especially this one day, when, when Matthew said it, when Matthew was taking notes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means bless those who are humble, bless those who understand that they don't really have the control and the authority that they think they do. Blessed are those who understand they need other people. Blessed are those who understand they need God. Blessed are the people who don't think that they can be in control because that's an illusion anyway. Study after study has shown that those who live in actual poverty don't define poverty by stuff. Money and things and food and things like that absolutely are real needs that need to be met. But those who really live in want, those who live in a situation where they, they, they would consider the government, their culture, themselves, everybody, they, they say, we live in poverty. If you ask them, what is poverty? They're not going to say, well, you know, I can't have the brand name clothes that I wish I could buy. They're not going to list things. They're going to describe their poverty in terms of relationships and in, ter in terms of choices. And what they're craving, what they're wanting is what's up, what you see up here. They're craving community. They're craving with some people they can walk through this experience with. And they're craving some empowerment. They're craving some sort of a way, some sort of hope where they could somehow with this new group of people find a way out. That's what they really want. They don't just want a big pile of food and a car. They want what we're all designed to want. What God programmed into all of us is community and empowerment. The reason that the illusions of rich riches and power of any kind are so powerful, so dangerous to us is because they, get, they make us think that we have this when we really don't. But those who live in genuine poverty, they know they don't have it. They know they need it and they want it and they're closer to the kingdom of God than anyone else. This is why, again, why the, the idea of poverty and the idea of humility and, and honesty before God is, is almost inseparable. When John the Baptist was asked what repentance looked like, he said in Luke 3.11, John replied, if you have two shirts, give, to the, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. What's repentance look like? It looks like sharing with the poor. Uh, when Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, one of the first times he just stood up and said, okay, this is me. He quoted Isaiah 61, 61.1, which says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. Again, Jesus is saying, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Watch the things that are important to me. And one of those is actually physically helping the physically poor. When Job was pleading his case to God, he said, why is all this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to me? And he, he makes this big case and he says, I, here's all the things I have done. Here's all the things I have not done. Why are you letting this happen to me? Right in the middle of that, he says, have I refused to help the poor or crush the hopes of the widows? Proverbs is full of stuff about why we should help the poor and why it's dangerous not to. Here's just two of them. Proverbs 19, 17. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. Proverbs 21, 13. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their time of need. 
And again, there's no doubt that there's a spiritual aspect to all of these as well. These are not only literal, but metaphorical, just like the curtain being torn. It literally was torn. The actual curtain was torn, but it also meant something much more than a curtain getting torn. And when we reach out to the poor, when we start to understand that this is important to God and we act on it just because it's important to him, we start getting transformed and so do they. And on the inside of the curtain, guess what God has given us? Community and empowerment. We walked through a lot of this just recently. I'd like you to read these two verses. I think they'll be very familiar to you. But especially the second one is kind of new as of this coming couple of weeks that we've been together. So let's read both of these together and we're going to keep going. Uh, First Peter from First Peter 2. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Do you see that? See the community? See the identity? And see the empowerment? John 17, this is Jesus praying in the garden the night before he died. Let's, Let's say out loud this part of his prayer. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Man, you talk about community. You talk about empowerment. To be one with Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit the same way they are one. That's the hope for all of us. And, and, and the reason that the poor are a little bit closer to experiencing that is because they already know they need that. They live every day knowing they need community and power and they know they don't have it. And the reason that the rich and the powerful are so far away from it is they think they've already got it. They just don't. Jesus made the Pharisees really mad all the time. Do you remember that? One of the stories that he told was, um, it was actually one of his parables, but he said two men went to pray at the temple. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. And the Pharisees were known for legally being perfect. Pretty much all of them, they did all the to-dos and they did none of the to-don'ts, but they were also really proud of that. They found their, their identity, their sense of power, all of that, their community within themselves, all of that was based on that rule keeping. Jesus said the Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple. The Pharisee said, Thank you that I'm not like everyone else. Thank you that I am so good. Thank you for helping me obey all the rules and stay away from all the bad stuff. Thank you, God. It's not really what he's saying. He's just bragging. The, the tax collector goes to God and he rips his clothes he, and he hits himself and he says, God, help me. I'm a sinner. I need you. And Jesus, point blank, right there with Pharisees, right there, right there with poor people and people with no authority or anything, right in the middle of all, he said, only one of those guys got heard by God that day. And it was the tax collector because he knew that he needed God. He was poor in spirit. 
Jesus, instead of setting up examples uh, from the Pharisees and from those kind of people, he set up people like the widow who gave everything. In Mark 12, 42 to 44, she put in just a couple of coins when everyone else was throwing huge amounts into the offering. And I'm sure the Pharisees and the Sadducees had at least 10% in there, and they were making a big deal about it. This lady just quietly put in just a couple of coins, but Jesus goes, hey, 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 check that out. That's what I'm talking about. She put, it in, she put in everything. She knows, she put in everything she has to live on. You know why? Because she knows the only person she can trust, the only hope she's got is God. Those two little coins aren't going to do anything for her. But if she puts all her trust in God, she's believing he's going to come through. And guess what, boys? He will. That's Jesus. That's his perspective. That's the way he makes wise choices. Jesus' wise choices look ridiculous to us sometimes. And I want you to understand this going into this, that if you commit to making some of the wise choices we're going to walk through, people are going to think you're ridiculous. You might even get some pushback from Christians, let alone all the other people around that just think, what in the world is wrong? But this is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. The meek means humble. It means someone who is not in it for themselves. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. This is what James was talking about when he said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. In that same passage, he straight out says, James writes in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's no accident he uses these words. Those are, this is a pattern. This is how, this is a peek behind the curtain. It's letting us see how God sees reality. We must become fully aware of our dependence on God. That is the starting point for any wise choice. Here, here's an example, speaking of riches and power. I, I think it's a really smart, good thing to have insurance and savings and things like that. I'm not against that. I don't think that's bad. I think that's really wise. But here's, what, here's the problem. I think a lot of us put all of our trust in that. We see that as a virtue. And, and if we've got insurance and we've got savings, then we think we've done the right thing, the moral thing, the godly thing. And maybe we haven't actually helped anybody who's poor in a long time. I think it's really important that we ask, where did Jesus draw the line? Where did Jesus, if he only had two coins, what would Jesus spend it on? What would Jesus trust? What would Jesus depend on? What is he asking us to depend on? What is he asking us to invest everything in? And God promises he works through the humble and the gentle more than anyone else. He works most often and most powerfully through the humble those who really get it, that God is bigger than them, and no matter how powerful or rich or anything else they ever become in life, they're never going to be bigger than Jesus. And the gentle, those who know they're strong, they know they're strong enough that they could cause some serious damage, so they're careful with other people. These are the people, the humble and the gentle, that God works through the most. They know their power comes from Him, so they know they're powerful but they use it intentionally. They use it carefully. 
There's a guy named Dr. Stephen Covey. Has anybody heard of him? Raise your hand for you. If you haven't, you should look his stuff up. He's most famous for knowing for his thing called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But he's got a whole bunch of great books. And I'll be sharing some ideas about uh, from him in the next couple of weeks. But here's something that he says. He says that proactive people recognize that they are responsible. Reactive people, on the other hand, find external sources to blame for their behavior. And, and so he encourages us to be proactive rather than reactive. I don't have time this morning to unpack all of that, and this is really a scripture thing, not a covey thing, but this is so powerful that I want to break down really quickly a couple of what he means by this and apply that as we wrap up this morning. What he means by proactive is you take action based on what you know to be right, not, what, on, not on what you're being forced to do at that moment or what you feel forced to do because of fear or, for, or pressure or to get approval from someone. You act, you live your life, you make your daily choices based on your value system, not on just the stuff around you. That's a totally different way of looking at life. The second thing that he talks about in being proactive instead of reactive is that he says that all of us have two circles. One is our circle of concern, and that is all the things that matter to us, the things that we love, the things that we hate, the things that we're, we're worried about, the things that we want God or someone to do, the things we'd like to do something about. But within that is a smaller circle, and that is our circle of influence. And that's the stuff that we can actually do something about. That's the stuff that we actually have the ability or the chance, the relationships, the power through Christ or even just through where we live, what street we live on or what church we attend or whatever else. But we actually could do something about that. And to be reactive is to spend most of your time just in the circle of concern, just worried about stuff. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about America? What are we going to do about the government? What are we going to do about the poor around the world? What are we going to do about the famine in Ethiopia? What are we going to do about the whatever that I have no control over whatsoever? And we just stress out, what am I going to do? But the proactive people, they live within that circle of influence. They still care about that, but they just pray and trust God. And they say, God, show me what I need to invest in. Show me what the wisest, the smartest, the most strategic, the most truly godly thing that I could actually do is. And help me do that. And when we live from that perspective, when we live within that circle of influence with God's help, based on God's values, that's when stuff actually happens. If you're taking notes, there's three things. And you, you might be able to jot something down this morning. I'm hoping you actually take this home and actually write these ideas down then prayerfully. Take some time to not just listen to me, but to give God a chance to speak to you. Look at these scriptures that are in this thing and reread them. Revisit them with just you and God. Maybe you and your family, you and your spouse, you and your kids. But revisit them and let, give God a chance to take it deeper. But these three things are what your circle of influences are. Number one is your relationships. The biggest changes that are going to happen in your life, the biggest ways you can impact other people's lives is not going to be just a gift you give them or a big event that you do or a program that you start. The biggest things that you're going to do as a church or as an individual is going to involve relationships that keep on going over time. 
This is why it's so important that we keep meeting together as big groups and small groups. It's why the family is so important to God. The real changes happen in the context of relationship. So you want to know how you can help the poor, for example? Figure out who you and your family know. Who are some people who are in genuine need of community and empowerment and or stuff that you know? That's where you start. I hope this makes sense. Second thing is your daily habits, the things that you do every day. It's awesome to sometimes do some really big things. And sometimes I believe God calls us to do some really big things. But most of the really big changes that happen in the world happen by people just digging in and doing their same thing time after time, day after day. It's those repeated choices, those things that this is just how I live my life. That's where the real power is. And if you realize that for whatever reason, you're investing more time, energy, and power in something that's not paying off for God's kingdom, you need to reinvest. You need to put all your coins, whether you just have two little ones or a huge pile of them, you need to put them all into God's kingdom. Only you know what those daily habits are, but you know how to do that. And thirdly, and finally, you need to figure out, do you really truly depend on God? Do you really trust God? Do you really understand that even if you have a huge savings account and a huge, perfect, like the dream insurance package and whatever else, you have a job that you're never going to get fired from no matter what, whatever it is that you find so much security in, do you really depend on God? Or maybe you are going to walk out here, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Do you really depend on God? However you depend on God is where the real power is going to happen. Where everything that you throw at his feet is where the real change is going to happen. I just heard this quote this week, and I love it. I've, I've been saying it to myself over and over. It's from Annie Dillard. It's so simple, it's deceptively simple. Let's say it out loud together. She says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Let's read that one more time. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. It's these daily choices that we made. Band, if you guys can come on up, that'd be awesome. It's these daily choices that we make that, that really transform everything. When you look back and you, you go back in, in, in your life and you, you go through all your memories, you might have some big days, days you got this job, days you got married, whatever it else. You, you might be able to go back and look at some stuff and you go, yeah, that was a major milestone. The guy graduated from this, the day this happened, this happened. But most of the stuff that makes a difference in the world is the stuff that you did over and over and over and over again. And, and your life, as you look back, it's not just that vacation you took. It's not just that one day you had that one talk. It's the way you treated your children and your spouse day after day after day that made the difference. The way we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. That being said, it starts with giving it all to God all at once. 
And if you need to do that in any way whatsoever, if you need to make the strategic choice of joining this community, I invite you to do that today. If you need to give your life back to God because you've been distant for a while, you're really convicted about something this morning, you just want to pray about it. If you need to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, please come and let's all, let's mean these words that we sing to him and let's all recommit ourselves to him this morning.